I have a question for you as we begin. Actually, two questions. First question, what if everything we just did, and indeed everything we think we're doing for God throughout our life, turns out to be utterly nothing in his eyes? What if it's nothing more than a piece of lead, as it were? That's a very discomforting thought, isn't it? Here's the second question, though. This one might be a little more optimistic. What can we do to turn that lead into gold? What can we do not to do more things, not to give more, but to know that what we are giving to God, whether it's our, our time, our, our money, our service, our involvement, our obedience, our worship, whatever we're doing, that God is pleased with that, that it's a right response. Is there a way to turn that lead into gold? Is there an alchemy of that kind of spiritual nature? There is, and we're going to see it here in Psalm 50. I'm going to invite you to turn there. It's also in your bulletin if you picked one of those up. I like this psalm, and I picked this because as we finished working through all God has done in the book of Ephesians, the last, what, 12 weeks now, I guess, and before we come to our Advent time, it is good to reflect on all that God has done and, and what should be our proper response. And here in Psalm 50, we see a beautiful description of what God desires in that regard. Now, Psalm 50, we're going to read it here in a second, but I'm going to read... Uh, <clears throat> verses 1 through 7. And let's get ourselves into context. This is a psalm where God is confronting his people. It's almost like God is saying to the ancient Israelites, who are the first audience of this, as well as to us, hey, sit down. We need to talk. You ever get those words from your spouse or someone, you know, especially someone in authority, puts a little shiver in your spine, we need to talk. You pretty much know, right, they're not going to give you a compliment and kind words. Rather, there's something between the two of you, and they're, they're wanting to work it out. But the very fact that they want to work it out instead of walking away is actually a good thing. That means that there is a way forward. God is saying to us, saying to the people of Israel, and, and we are God's people in the same spiritual dynamics in many senses, hey, can you sit down for a minute? We need to talk. What does God say? Well, here's the description of him coming to us in Psalm 50, verse 1. The Mighty One, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty. Zion, another name for Jerusalem and the temple. God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him, and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge. Now, if you're reading this as an Israelite when this was written some seven or eight centuries before Christ, what you're thinking in your mind is this. All right, this is a great scene. God is coming with all these uh, solemn, even scary elements, this fire and this tempest, and he's coming to judge. In fact, he, this is such a cosmic judgment that he calls heaven and earth as witnesses in this judgment. And so if you're reading this the first time, or hearing this the first time as the people back then, 
you know all these other parallel passages where God comes like this to judge the nations. But then you hear this word, that he may judge his people. And he says, gather to me this consecrated people who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for he is a God of justice. Listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. So God is saying to the people then, and and analogously, (laughs) sorry, he's saying to us as well, we need to talk. There's something going on here that's between you and I that we need to work out. Now, what was the nature of God's charge? Well, in particular, God is going to God's going to say, I, I want us to talk about these sacrifices that you're offering to me. Now, you remember that when God made his covenant, the sacred agreement or promise between he and the people of Israel, as he pointed out here, the people of my covenant, there were things that God promised to do, and there were things that Israel was told to do in response. A large part of that was the temple worship, including the sacrifices. So, if you were an Israelite living at this time, you knew that at certain times of the year, if it was a religious holiday, you would bring a sacrifice to God. And if you had sinned, and, and it was brought to your attention either your, by your own conscience or maybe someone else, you were to bring a sacrifice to God. And you would take then a, a bull or a goat, or if you couldn't afford that, uh, some sort of bird, and you would bring it to the priest at the temple, the priest serving as God's intermediary here, and he would take that animal and kill it, and then he would offer it as a burnt offering. Now, what was God doing here, by the way? Why, why does God want this sacrificial system? Well, I think there's at least a couple reasons, and it's worth kind of exploring this. In the first place, all the nations around Israel at this time understood that this was the way that you would respond to God and offer things to him. So, in a sense, God was giving them a culturally understood way of responding to him. But it goes a little deeper than that for Israel, because he was also showing them that their sins had to be paid for by the blood sacrifice of someone or something else. And in this way, the book of Hebrews says, there was at least temporarily not a taking away of sin, but a a covering of that so that God could be with his people. And then thirdly, we've already, this is probably already in your mind, all the sacrifices are designed to point ahead towards the cross, where in the whole book of Hebrew, about half the book, is explaining all this, that the sacrifices of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Jesus, the one who offered himself as a complete and final and eternal sacrifice for our sins. So that's the context of that. So that's why God gave the burnt offerings. And this is at the heart, then, of his complaint. Now, his complaint, though, is not that they're not doing enough. His complaint is not that they're not offering enough sacrifices. In verse 8, I bring no charges against you concerning your sacrifices or concerning your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. It's not the amount that he's talking about, but rather what God is sitting down with his people and talking about, his charge against them is this. You have a low view of me, and this has poisoned your response towards me. 
And that's a dynamic that carries forth from the temple to the church. Because when we have a low view of God or, or a view of God that's deficient, it will poison, it will per- pervert, it will corrupt our response to God. It will make everything that we've just done, like, like we talked about, everything we're doing for God, something that he cares very little about. In fact, it says in Isaiah chapter 1, God's talking about the sacrifice in the same context. They're making me nauseous here, guys. My soul detests these things. Wait, God, you were the one who set, you know, set this whole system up. This was all your idea. He says, no, you're, you're getting it wrong. It's not the amount of sacrifice. It's that you are doing this with the wrong view of who I am and why I'm requesting this. Now, what was that view? Well, apparently, many of the people felt that by offering sacrifices, they were giving God something he didn't have before. And in most of the nations around there, sacrifices were regarded as food for the gods. And that's why he goes on to this point. Verse 9. Hey, guys. (laughs) I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine. Get that up here. Every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the, blood, the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? The first thing God wants to do is correct our understanding. He says, look, you, you guys are offering these things to me like it's some sort of religious duty that I, I, I need this somehow. And I, I think some of them probably did view this as food for Yahweh, you know, food for the God. Maybe some of them felt like, though, okay, this is something we're doing, bringing this, this honor or praise to God that, that he desires and needs. And so our goal is to give him this, this worship and praise that, that he uh, somehow is magnified by. What is happening here is this. Their focus and this is, can, can be true of us, their focus of their whole dynamic with God has shifted from what God has done for them to what they're doing for God. Their focus has shifted from receiving God's grace to what they're doing, and are they doing enough, and why are they doing this? Their focus is on what they're doing for God. That is such an easy thing to fall into. I remember growing up, Independent Fundamental Baptist Church. And I recall much of the preaching of that time, even after all these years, you know. And, uh, and you know what it was about? It was about all the things you were supposed to do or not do because you were supposed to be a good Christian, because you were supposed to live this certain kind of life. It was never about, well, they did preach the gospel, thankfully, but that wasn't the main focus of, of the teaching or really of my own heart as I, as I grew up in that church. No, it was the focus was on, am I witnessing enough? Am I reading my Bible enough? Am I giving enough? Is my hair short enough? (laughs) Uh, Am I listening to the rock music? Am I doing this or that? This is a deadly, deadly thing. Because we're doing just kind of the church equivalent of Israel's heir, thinking that what we do is the focus, thinking that what we do sometimes somehow is, is the major part of our relationship with God, and it's not. This is a deadly thing. 
And the minute that we begin focusing more on what we're doing for God, rather than responding in thankfulness and grace to what he's done for us, we lose the plot. We lose the essential nature of what God wants us to be like. So this is his charge against us, or against his people. Now there's a New Testament passage that, in a sense, parallels this, and I want to bring it about. But I want to do that by then asking this question here. Where do we go from here? <laughs> Where do we go from here? All right, so, as I said, God's saying to his people, to us, sit down, we need to talk. Now, if you've ever had that conversation, you know that hopefully it wasn't just a condemnation, uh, but rather that person you're talking to, whether it's employer, spouse, or friend, or neighbor, whatever, there's a way forward, right? And of course, there is a way forward that God wants to give us. There's a warning, there's a problem, but there's a way forward. What do we do? What is our response to this? Well, I'm going to say three things, and they're very much related to each other. First, enlarge your vision of God. Enlarge your vision of God. We see that already brought out. Look, guys, everything that is around you, everything you're touching, every, everything you could ever offer to me as a sacrifice is already mine, right? I made all this. God brought all things into creation, into existence by the very will, his very will and his very words. Therefore, we're, we can never give back something to God that he didn't already have. I like these I like these words of A.W. Tozer here. Need is a creature word and cannot be spoken of the creator. God has a voluntary relationship to everything he has made, but he has no necessary relationship to anything outside of himself. His interest in his creatures arises from his sovereign good pleasure, not from any need that those creatures can supply, nor from any completeness that they can bring to him who is complete in himself. He did not bring his worlds into being to meet some unfilled need in himself, as a man might build a house to shelter him against the winter cold or, or plant a field of corn to provide him for the necessary food. Since he is the being supreme over all, it follows that God cannot be elevated. It is written that he upholds all things by the word of his power. How could he be raised or supported by the things that he himself upholds? We're were all human beings to suddenly become blind, still the sun would shine by day and the stars by night, for these owe nothing to the millions who benefit from their light. So, were every man on earth to become an atheist, it could not affect God in any way. He is what he is in himself without regard to any other. To believe in him adds nothing to his perfections. To doubt him takes nothing away. That is a very good quote from A.W. Tozer. And this is what we need. We need to spend time in, in books like this. This is taken from uh, The Knowledge of the Holy, one of his books. And uh, this morning I sent you an email, probably some of you already have it, with a link to this book. This would be a great book to go through uh, as we prepare for, for Christmas. Because it's when we understand the nature and wonder of who God is more fully that we are, are enthralled more deeply that he would come as a human baby. So in the knowledge of the holy, and, and again, I sent you, if you're on the mailing list, you should have gotten a, a link to that already. And, and this is what we see here, right? God wants to make the point again and again. I don't need anything. 
I own the cattle on the thousand hills. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I could take care of everything I have by myself. I love the way this New Testament passage puts it. So if you know the book of Romans, you know it's kind of in two parts. First 11 chapters are all about what God has done for us. So he, Paul takes great pains to explain the, the way of salvation and why the cross is God's answer to our very deep sin problem. And then he goes on to explain the, the fullness of that and what that means for our Christian life. And that because of that, all things God will work out together for our good. And he, he puts us in the cosmic sphere of all that God is doing. He, he gives 11 chapters of that. And in chapter 12, he starts saying, okay, this is how to respond. But before he does that, at the end of chapter 11, there is this doxology. There is this doxology. And what does he say? He says, oh, the depths and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So a right response to God always starts with a deepening understanding of who we're actually responding to, right? Because in this world, we don't have a concept of anyone else like this. It takes dedication and work and time to understand even a little bit more fully what God is like. Enlarge your vision of God. Second, grow in gratitude. To grow in gratitude. And um, I want to show you a couple. I've got these out of order here. Coming back to Psalm 50. What's the next verse that God gives after this, this, this startling confrontation with his people? He says this. Sacrifice or bring thanks offerings to God and fulfill your vows to the Almighty. You see, the burnt offerings weren't the only kind of sacrifice that you would bring to God. There was also something called the thank offering. You'll see it described in Leviticus 11. I'm just going to summarize it here. A burnt offering was what you're supposed to bring. A thank offering was not something you had to bring at all. There was no obligation for you to bring this to God. Rather, the thank offering, you can kind of get this from the name, is when you were renewed in your understanding that God's grace and God's goodness were, were so poured out to you that you just wanted to respond in some way. How do you, how do you respond in love to someone who has done everything for you? God says, all right, well, here's how. I'm going to give you a way. And here's the way to bring a thank offering to me. And that's what he says here. Okay, don't worry about the burnt offerings right now because you've got such a corrupted view of what that looks like, Israel. I don't even want that. What I want, what I want you to do is simply bring thank offerings to me. Just simply respond with a heart of thanks, knowing that it's all about my grace and my goodness to you. And that's what he's saying to us. Give, bring our thanks offerings to God. Now, so what does that look like? Well, first of all, I put it like this. Yeah, I'm out of order here. That's all right. To grow in gratitude like this, I think, means at least three things. Or two things. With first part, has three parts. Um, growing gratitude is a choice 
to increasingly believe three great things, three great truths. First of all, it's all God's. And we've been there, right? But it's all God's. Let's, let's nail that down a little bit more personally, though. Everything you and I have is a gift from God. We look at our homes, we look at our marriages, and if there's any goodness there, we look at our, our children and maybe our grandchildren, we, we look at all that God has done, and the challenge is to grow in our understanding that these are not the result of my hard work or my intelligence. These are a gift of God. So yeah, but I worked hard for these. Great. Deuteronomy says that God is the one who gives you the ability to create wealth. 1 Corinthians says, what do you have that you did not receive? And the answer, of course, is nothing. It's a rhetorical question, right? If you have gifts, if you have skill, if you have a good work ethic, if you have intelligence, these are gifts of God. All that we have is a gift from him. It's all God's. Second, it's all good. It's all good. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I'm just trying to summarize here the New Testament theme. You see it really pronounced in Romans 8, 28 and 29, right? And we know that God works all things for the good of those who have been called according to his purpose. And then he goes on to talk about what that means. Notice he, he doesn't say everything that happens to you is good. That would be a lie. Because it's not good. It's not, not in the sense that we don't even like it, but it's not good in God's eyes. Sin and death are not good things. They're not the way God wanted this world to be. But the power of the cross says God is even able to take those things and use them for a good purpose. And that's what he's saying he will do. So we come increasingly to understand, I don't have to worry about things. I don't have to, I don't have to worry that I'm going to have enough for tomorrow, that I'm going to be sufficient for my job, that my kids are going to turn out a certain way. I am going to be able to trust that because God has placed his love upon me and these people I care about, that ultimately, in his way, and by his definition of good, which is the only one that counts, it will be all good. Thirdly, it's all grace. That word grace, of course, the Greek word just means a gift. And we saw that in Ephesians again and again, right? It is by grace that you have been saved. We talked about that transformation that God has brought us into. And all this is by grace. All this is by grace. Everything we have is a gift of grace. Why, if you go out there this week and you receive that paycheck, maybe you got in your mailbox or direct deposit, you look at that, you, you can be grateful for that. But that's a paycheck. That isn't grace. And we have to come to the place more and more where we, we understand that all the good things we have in our life, they're not because I've earned them. They're a gift. They're grace. It's all grace. So it's growing deeper in this understanding. And then lastly, it's um, growing gratitude also means it's a daily practice. Uh, I heard this someone say, you know, they kind of, they're going through some shower thoughts, you know, come to you randomly and says, isn't it a bit unnerving The doctors call what they do practice? <laughs> she liked that. Vivian got that joke. And in a sense, but, but we know practice just means something you do repeatedly in some context. That's what we mean. That's what I'm trying to get at. That this, this gratitude 
is not simply trying or desiring to become a more grateful person. It's actually practicing gratitude. What does that look like? Well, I'm going to, I stole my wife's old devotional book here. Um, this is a great book. It's the 1,000 Gifts Devotional Annual. There are devotions here encouraging us to understand what it means to live a life of thankfulness, to make our whole life uh, an understanding that we're receiving God's grace and simply responding to thanks in different ways. And then in the end, back part, there's all these blanks, blank lines where you are encouraged to write down the things you're actually grateful for each day. So how many, how many are you on? I, I, I know you're well past this book. Four or 5,000? All right. And you know what? I have seen the difference this has made in your life. Well, I'll just read some of these to you. Uh, that Dan is so brilliant. <laughs> that Dan is my husband. That I have such a sexy husband. Um, no, I'm not going to read these because I don't have permission. But, but you know, some of those are very deep and spiritual about God's patience and goodness, and some of them are just good night's sleep, a nice meal, a warm house. Why? Because they're all gifts. And what I love about what Amy has done is she has practiced that again and again. She hasn't just had the desire, okay, I want to be more grateful. She's actually practiced gratitude, and that has made her more grateful. And that's the way it is for all of us. All right, last part. Make all that we do for God a thank you note to him. Make all that you do for God a thank you note for him. You ever had someone give you something? It wasn't Christmas. It wasn't your birthday. They just gave it out of the kindness of their heart. And you just wanted to send a note to say, thank you. I recognize that this was a, something that you gave that blessed me greatly. Here's what I'm talking about. When God was saying to the people there, fulfill your vows to the Lord and offer these, these thank offerings, I, I think this was kind of what he was getting at. A vow to the Lord was something that would Israelite would just say, okay, because of what you've done, this is what I'm going to do. And it might be an act of service, it might be an act of something else. And, and God ties us very closely here to thanksgiving, to offering thanks to him. And I believe, I believe that God more and more wants us to bring whatever we give to God, not as a religious duty, not as something I do because it's right even, not as something I do because I want to be a better Christian. Not as something I do because I want to be Christ-like. Not as something I do because it's just ingrained in me this is the kind of person I want to be. No. All those things are putting the focus on me. He just wants them to be a thanks offering to God. I want us to encourage us. I don't think God wants us to do more necessarily. He may, depending on our situation. I don't think that God wants us to do less. But we have to do it differently. We come to the time of year where we're giving thanks to God. And not just a thanksgiving, but as someone said, a thanks living. When I first heard that, I'm like, okay, that's a little too cutesy, that phrase, you know, <laughs> thanks living. And then I got to think, you know, that's not bad. 
it is a little too cute, but that idea of living my life and what I'm doing as a living thanks to God, wow, that could be a very powerful thing and a very pleasing thing, I think, to God. In fact, um, isn't that what we see here as we come to the end of this passage in Romans 11 and then we move into chapter 12, verse 1. What does he tell us? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, not because God's going to punish you if you don't do this, not because you have to get it right, not because you have to earn this, but simply because of what he's done for you. I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Now, why is he talking about a living sacrifice? Well, again, the contrast in the Old Testament, you would bring a, a dead sacrifice, right? Because there was had to be a, a blood penalty paid for our sin. But that's already taken care of. Does that mean we don't offer any sacrifices? Well, we're not going to offer them at the temple in Jerusalem. It's not there anymore. It's been there for, almost, for over 2,000 years now. No, what this means is that the things we bring to God can be a sacrifice that they're offered with a heart of thanks to him. I want to encourage us in our giving financially to the church or to other ministries or other people, in our service in the church or the community, in the ways that we give of ourselves to other people, give them other, of our time and our involvement, to help them become a more Christ-like community. That, that will take time and involvement. Let's offer these things as a gift to God. Let's offer these things as a gift to God. Or maybe there is a, a decision, a habit, or a sin that you feel God speaking to you about. It's been there for a while. And if it's been there for a while, it's probably because it's apparently you're thinking at least it's feeling some need in your life. And maybe it did at one point in some way, but not the best way, but not now. Wouldn't it be a beautiful thing to say, God, I'm going to offer my obedience in this area to you simply as a sacrifice of thanks, simply as a way to say thank you to what you've done. I know you're not going to punish me. You're not going to nail me. You're not going to, you're not going to withhold your blessings to me. You're still going to give me grace. But this is what I want to do. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be a holy sacrifice to God? Wouldn't that be a pleasing sacrifice to God? Wouldn't that be true worship? You know, in the Middle Ages, there were very, very smart people who wanted, really wanted to learn through alchemy, how to turn lead into gold as we started. They never got there, of course, because that's not how chemistry works. Uh, eventually, they figured that out, right? Smart people, though. Very smart people were involved in that. But spiritually, there is an alchemy. There is a way that we've just described here to take what we offer to God and make sure it's not lead, but gold, pleasing, beautiful, and precious to our Father. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray.